0: If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news?
4: Diego came to Drake's ships at Nombre de Dios when he landed there in 1573 and called out to Drake's men to ask if it was Drake's ship and demanded to be brought on board, even though they were actually shooting at him at the time.
5: That was Miranda Kaufman on board a replica of the Golden Hind. And
2: why Timbuktu? Well, Timbuktu, it represents one of the great bodies of written historical material anywhere on Earth.
5: And that was Gus Casely-Hayford describing the history of Timbuktu. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Matt Elton and I'm the section editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. It is available in all good news agents, or you can take out a subscription from anywhere in the world visit historyextra dot com slash subscribe hyphen today for the latest subscription offers We also have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire, Google Play, and Zinio for details of all of these digital formats head to historyextra dot com slash digital Dr. Miranda Kaufman is a historian specializing in the story of Africans in Britain. For the latest in our History Explorer series, she visited a replica of Francis Drake's golden hind ship in Brixham in the company of the magazine's production editor, Spencer Mizen. Tudor explorer Francis Drake encountered many Africans on his travels and some even joined his crew, as Miranda explained.
1: Hello, I'm here aboard the Golden Hind in Brixham with historian Miranda Kaufman uh, to discuss Sir Francis Drake's famous circumnavigation of the globe, uh, which started in 1577, and more specifically the presence of a black man named Diego on that voyage. So, at Miranda, how did uh, Diego come to be on the Golden Hind?
4: Well, Diego had actually met Drake uh, some four years before in Panama uh, when the two of them were part of a successful joint raid on a Spanish silver plate fleet uh, as it was crossing the Isthmus of Panama. So they'd known each other for four years by the time the Golden Hind set sail in 1577.
1: Right, we're stood next to the uh, captain's uh, cabin on the Golden Hind. Miranda, can you tell me how did Diego uh, meet uh, Francis Drake?
4: So, Diego was a Cimaroon, uh, which means that he was um, an African who had been enslaved by the Spaniards, um, taken across the Atlantic, uh, but then run away from the Spanish mines in the Spanish Caribbean. And when he met Diego, he was part of the Cimarron settlement in Panama. And Diego came to Drake's ships at Nombre de Dios when he landed there in 1573 and called out to Drake's men to ask if it was Drake's ship and demanded to be brought on board even though they were actually shooting at him at the time. And he was one of the key go betweens between the English and the Simaroons, um, and they had this incredibly successful attack on the on the Spanish um, silver when they were transporting it across the land over the isthmus of Panama. Uh, and between them, they they ra- they raided the silver and gold and did pretty well out of it. In fact, the uh, Drake gave the Simaroon leader a uh, gilt scimitar, which uh, is a kind of sword that had previously belonged to Henry II of France.
1: So, Miranda, what would life have been like for Diego on the boat? How would he have been treated by his fellow crew members?
4: Well, um, so we don't know much about Diego's life in between um, coming back from Panama in 1570. Three, And then he sets out on the gold. we, he, we find him again on the golden Hind in, in 1577. And it seems from the accounts of the time that he was on board as Drake's personal manservant. So he had quite a kind of special role on the ship and his, he basically had, was at Drake's beck and call. And so it, but he probably um, spent quite a lot of time in or by the cabin waiting to do whatever Drake asked of him next, from fetching him water to you know, running errands about the ship.
1: And what happened to Diego?
4: Well, Diego was part of a party from the ship that um, landed on an island called Mocha Isle off the coast of Chile in November 1578. And the local local people of that island were not particularly pleased to see Drake and his men and they attacked them with arrows. And Drake was quite badly wounded and so was Diego. Uh, but he seems to have held on and actually only died from his wounds uh, almost a year later near the Moluccas, uh, near Monday, Indonesia.
1: We're next to the um, Barbara Surgeon cabin uh, below decks. Miranda, what happened to Diego after he received his wounds?
4: Well, all we, well, the only facts we have from the voyage account is that he was wounded on Mocha Isle uh, by the arrow fire, and that he eventually died from his wounds um, near the Malacca's. But what we can we can look at um, the history of, of medicine on board Tudor ships and imagine what that really meant for that almost a year where he he was wounded after he was wounded. Um, the, the Mary Rose um, uh, has a. An intact barber surgeon's chest with all the uh, instruments, some uh, copies of which we can see here. And you know, medicine at the time was fairly basic and brutal. They definitely didn't have any uh, an anesthetic, uh, but. Actually, the thing that's most likely to have killed him is um, the wound becoming infected or gangrenous. Um, and that was, is more, most, what most likely killed him because it obviously wasn't a bad enough wound to kill him straight away.
1: And that happened quite some time possibly after he received the wounds.
4: Yes, because the, the, well, the anonymous account um, of Drake's voyage that this information comes from says that he didn't die till they were near the Moluccas, um, the, the Spice Islands.
1: Sure. And how unusual was it for a black man to be on an English ship in the 16th century?
4: Well, not as unusual as you might think. Um, if you think about it, as, you know, as we were just saying, you, there were lots of ways to die on a Tudor ship. There were high mortality rates, and, uh, but you know, it, was, uh, it needed a certain number of crew of men on board to, to keep it sailing, and... So, uh, there are cases, so for example in 1582, uh, when on Fenton's voyage, um, where he calls at Guinea, he had, takes on f- four um, Africans on board to replace crew members who have died. And the voyage accounts of the period often refer to um, Afri- Africans on board English ships.
1: Right, we're back above decks on uh, the Gordal Hind um, in the lovely Devon Sunshine. Um, Miranda, you were saying that um, it wasn't that unusual for black people to be on um, English boats in the 16th century. So were there any other, any other Africans on the Golden Hind during Drake's circumnavigation? It's
4: funny you should ask me that. <laughs> uh, it turns out that, that y- yes, um, these same voyage accounts show that um, there were at least three other Africans on the Golden Hind at various points in the voyage, mostly when, uh, when Drake was attacking various Spanish ships off the coast of... Uh, uh, Spanish America the west coast um, so he, he picks up one, two African men, one at uh, Paita and one at Guatulco and the one we know most about is a woman called Maria um, possibly Francesca but probably Maria uh, she's referred to different, as a, with different names and different sources but uh, she was uh, met Drake uh, off the coast of Nicaragua she was on a Spanish ship that was coming back from China Uh, belonging to a Spaniard called Zarate Uh, and Drake took her on board at that point um, in April 1579 until December of that year uh, when uh, Drake um, abandoned her on an island called Crab Island um, near in in Indonesia Uh, along with these two other African men who um, whose names we don't know so it's not entirely clear um, the, or the exact circumstances of this, this, op- this, um, this episode, but we do know that William Camden it's, uh, said that, that Drake had purchased much blame... For this action, and we also know that Maria was by this point heavily pregnant, and that must have had a bearing on the decision-making process. Um, some people argue that he left her here because he was ashamed that he, she was heavily pregnant, because there were rumours that he himself might have been the father, or one of his uh, his gentleman sailors, and that would have been embarrassing when they came back to England. Apparently, it was embarrassing anyway because they found out anyway. Yeah. But uh, or you know, when uh, Drake's nephew, who might be biased. Um, in the other direction Uh, uh, when he was uh, caught up by the Spanish Inquisition um, some years later he said that they'd left the three Africans on Crab Island to found their own settlement there and they'd left them with food Um, but he also mentions that there's no running water on the island so uh, we don't know who to believe but it's clear that Maria was was on the boat for half of uh, 1579 and probably that being the only woman on board a ship of 60 Tudor sailors was probably not a very pleasant experience I well imagine and how many how many black
1: people do we think would have been in England at the time?
4: So um, I've I've been uh, looking through you know parish registers, household accounts, uh, tax returns, court records, anything I can get my hands on. I've yeah. found um, records of over 360 individuals in in Britain, at England and Scotland, between yeah. 1500 and 1640.
1: Yeah.
4: Uh, and that may just be you know the ones we can found have archival records mm-hmm. of. So there may be more. There were certainly the larger groups that sort of came and went and. Um, I think you know we have to remember you know that Tudor England was a lot more of a cosmopolitan place than we sometimes imagine.
1: And how would most of them got to England and Scotland, and under what circumstances?
4: Well, I think again we have to understand this in the context of um, the uh, Africans in the world at this time. So, as a result of Portuguese and Spanish um, activity in Africa and across the Atlantic world, by the Tudor period, there are already Africans living in much of southern Europe and across the Caribbean uh, and and South America, as well as just in Africa. So whenever England had contact with any of those places, Africans could come to England. I mean, for example, there were, what, 10% 10 of Lisbon was was of African origin in 1550. Uh, So when royals or um, aristocrats or merchants traveled to England from Europe, they might bring Africans with them. we find records of africans in, in sort of in you know italian and uh, portuguese merchant households in in london and southampton uh, but also uh, if uh, you know people like drake are raiding the spanish caribbean as he does in 1585 to 6 or capturing privateering ships uh, as privateers capturing capturing spanish ships as prizes those ships might well have africans on board and they were brought back to england as well and on a smaller scale the, uh, the English do begin trade directly with Africa from the f- middle of the 16th century onwards and small groups of Africans were brought back as a result of that uh, to be trained uh, to, to be taught English and then trained and taken back to Africa to work as trade interpreters and, and factors.
1: Um, do you think that number will surprise a lot of people now to hear that there is that many uh, black Africans in the country at the time?
4: Well certainly some people I've spoken to have been surprised and Others have said that they're not surprised, but okay. um, I think um, that more people need to know that they were here.
1: Sure, and what do you think we can do to to spread the word, as it were?
4: Well, we can uh, share this podcast with <laughs> as many people as possible, but I think, I think it's about um, asking different questions of the past. I think yeah. you know, this is British history, but it's an aspect of British history that has, been, has not been you know, centre stage in, in the past. And I think that. Um, what do you
1: think that is? What?
4: I think that um, until, you know, until um, the 20th century, historians have mostly been interested in questions of high politics and war and uh, you know, looking at great men and how they became great and what, and, and you know, so the, the whole focus of history has shifted over the last century to look more at the lives of ordinary people. And I think that uh, the, the new, like, research into the history of Africans in this country is actually part of a much wider shift towards looking at social history and the kinds of questions we ask of the past. And I think, obviously, I think some of these questions are, you know, definitely coming from present-centred concerns. But I think it's important to incorporate, you know, the, these histories into our general idea of British history and to show that, you know, this island has 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 been. Uh, has had immigrants coming to it for centuries and not just recently.
1: So there's a bit of a um, perception that immigration began with a wind rush um, just after the war. I mean, um, do you think that's something we need to challenge?
4: Uh, well, it's just completely and utterly wrong. <laughs> uh, you know, we have Afri- Yeah, there were there were Libyans in the Roman army serving uh, on Hadrian's Wall. There have been you know there have been Africans coming here. You know, at least it's Roman times, possibly before, um, and certainly by the Tudor period there were plenty, and by the Georgian period there's estimated sort of ten to fifteen thousand Africans in in England. So. Yes, I mean, you you just need to get your facts straight, don't you?
1: (laughs) And how would, especially in, um, say, the 15th, 16th, 17th centuries, how would black people have been received by the people of England and Scotland?
4: Uh, Well, this is something that's more difficult to tell, um, but I think that the very fact that they were being... Uh, baptised and buried um, and married sometimes in the Church of England shows a certain kind of level of acceptance in, in, in English society. Um, and it's also important to, to stress that um, it was not legally possible to be a slave under English common law. So a ruling of 1569 ruled that the air of England is too pure an air for slaves to breathe in. Um, I mean, what's quite interesting is that uh, although, yeah, so it wasn't legally possible to enslave um, Africans in England, uh, once you set sail in a ship like this, uh, you know things changed. Um, you know, I, th- I think once uh, when Tudors were when Tudor sailors were sailing around the Atlantic world, they sort of t- took things as they found them. And you know, if they met an African merchant, they might trade with them. If they met an African king, they might send them a diplomatic mission. But if they met um, Africans who were already being enslaved by by the Spanish, they might um, you know they might buy some of them from the Spanish to replenish. Uh, missing crew but then equally you know as we learned with with drake and the simaroons when they had a, a shared objective of, of capturing spanish silver for example they were more than happy to work together you know to their mutual benefit
1: so miranda um apparently this drake's certain navigation of the globe wasn't the only time wasn't the only voyage where he came into contact with black africans i wonder if you could explain a bit about that
4: yeah, so as we as we saw, actually, um, as a young man, Drake had actually been uh, on one of John Hawkins's early slaving voyages in the 1560s. Uh, but then later in his career, we saw that he makes these alliances with the Simarons in in Panama, uh, and again, he's got these Africans on his circumnavigation voyage. But uh, Drake again raids the Caribbean in 1585 to 6. And on that voyage, al- almost every port that he lands on, places like Cartagena in modern day Colombia, Africans actually run away from the Spaniards to join Drake's ships. And there's a really interesting um, poem about Drake's raid on Carthagena where it says that... Uh, because it's amazing, when you look at the way he attacks the town, he manages to land on the only he managed to attack it on the only beach where he's got information about where the best place to land is because they've put poison stakes on the beaches and stuff to protect themselves from this pirate that they called El (laughs) Dracón. and uh, you know but but it says in this poem that the reason he knows this is because these two African fishermen uh, tell him so he meets these African fishermen near Cartagena and they tell him uh, where to attack so there's this interesting relationship there and um in a way the english raid was a sort of form of escape for for these africans who you know weren't sure maybe what they how they were going to be treated by the english but thought yeah. it must have been better from either the way they were being treated by the spanish at Could the get time worse, yeah. and so actually a lot of africans do get on drake's uh shi- ships on that on that voyage and um and they, he takes them all to Roanoke where the English are starting to set up a colony but actually when they get there the colonists are not, not, not enjoying themselves and there's a big storm and in fact a lot of them probably died in the storm but we do have records that could be tied up from the English records which of Africans who must have come to England as a result of that voyage yeah. and there's in fact one who gets as far as Paris who is, right. yeah, the, the ambassador to Paris writes back about him
1: and can you tell me about the Drake Jewel?
4: There's a portrait of Francis Drake from 1591, where the one piece of jewellery that he's wearing is this large jewel on a belt round his waist. Uh, and it's a really impre- It's in the Victoria and Albert Museum now. It's a really impressive uh, gem-studded, you know, object that opens up to um, to have show a little miniature of Elizabeth the First. So we know that Elizabeth the First gave it to him certainly before this portrait was painted, but probably after his uh, circumnavigation voyage and his knighthood. And um, on the front of it, has this very arresting image of a, an African man's head in profile on top of a, the profile of a white a white woman and an English woman. I think that now we know a bit more about the history of Drake's alliances with the Simaroons and Diego, his relationship with Diego. I think that puts an interesting new perspective on this image and perhaps it can be read as a symbol of this fruitful um, alliance between the African Cimmerians and the, the and the English, you know, perhaps the the English woman is actually meant to be Elizabeth, and right. you know, maybe this is you know, a symbol of that alliance against their m- uh, mutual foe, the Spaniards. Yeah.
5: That was Miranda Kaufman in the company of Spencer Mizen. Miranda has written an article on Africans in Tudor and Stuart Britain in our April issue, which is out now. Also in the issue, Professor Ian Kershaw questions why Adolf Hitler fascinates us more than any other historical monsters. Meanwhile, we're exploring the mysteries of Shakespeare's life, challenging myths about Pocahontas, and discovering how beans were once thought to be a powerful aphrodisiac. Look out for our April issue in all good news agents, and in many digital formats. Speaking of our digital formats, we are currently running a special promotion whereby you can purchase several of our back issues – for a greatly reduced price of just 99 pence each in the UK or 99 cents in the US. It applies to iPad, iPhone, Kindle Fire and Google Play. To take advantage of this offer, please visit the newsstand on your device or head to immediateapps.com where you can also find great deals from some of our sister titles. The offer ends on Easter Monday, so get in while you can. And now we have a short advertisement break. In his quarter of a million copy bestseller... The Secret Life of Bletchley Park. Sinclair Mackay told the story of the ordinary men and women thrown together to do extraordinary things. His follow-up, The Secret Listeners, revealed the stories behind the codebreakers, people sent across the world on life-changing adventures to intercept German messages for decoding back at Bletchley Park. Now, in his new book, The Lost World of Bletchley Park, an illustrated history of the wartime codebreaking centre, Sinclair Mackay gives an unparalleled glimpse of a lost world and tells the history of a building and the people who worked there like no other. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Before our next interview, it's time for the latest history news with our website editor, Emma McFarman.
0: All evidence points to the Leicester skeleton belonging to Richard III, leading archaeologist Mike Pitts has said. In an exclusive interview with History Extra, the editor of British Archaeology insisted that, taken together, the DNA testing, radiocarbon dating and damage to the skeleton prove that the remains belonged to the former king. Cumulatively, the evidence makes a very convincing case, he said. We cannot be 100% certain that it's him. There has to be, in any historical situation, an element of doubt. But sometimes we recognise that the doubt is so small that it's insignificant. For all practical purposes, we can say that the Leicester skeleton is Richard's. His comments came in response to doubts about the identity of the skeleton raised by Michael Hicks, Head of History at the University of Winchester, and Martin Biddle, archaeologist and director of the Winchester Research Unit. In interviews of BBC History magazine, the pair raised concerns about tests carried out on the skeleton and called for field records to be made publicly available. In other news... Unprecedented detail about the age, diet and health of eight mummies has been revealed by new technology that virtually unwraps them. Curators at the British Museum have collaborated with scientists and medical experts to use CT scans and 3D visualisation to better understand how people lived and died in the ancient Nile Valley. From the museum's collection of 120 mummies, the team selected eight significant individuals and used non-invasive scanning techniques to learn about their age at death, health problems suffered during life, and the manner of mummification. The findings are detailed in a new book, Ancient Lives, New Discoveries, published to accompany a major interactive exhibition at the British Museum. Meanwhile, the remains of an 18th-century ship exposed off the Northumberland coast last year after a tidal surge, has been designated a scheduled ancient monument by English Heritage. The wreck, which lays about 650 metres off Bamburgh Castle, now has added protection, making it an offence to damage it. A study suggests that the vessel dates from about 1770 and was probably English.
5: Thanks for that, Emma. Don't forget to visit historyextra.com for all the latest history news. A couple of weeks ago, we broadcast a talk from last year's History Weekend Festival in Malmesbury, and after a positive response from listeners to that, we've decided to bring you another one. This time, it's Gus Casely-Hayford, a cultural historian who presented Lost Kingdoms of Africa on BBC television. For his talk, Gus delved into the history of one of Africa's most important cities, Timbuktu.
2: At the beginning of this year, I, I and perhaps some of you as well, watched in horror as um, many of Mali's most ancient monuments were deliberately damaged and some of them actually destroyed. Um, and it was a campaign of what appeared to be systematic vandalism by a group called Ansar Dine, and they're, they're a sort of Islamic militia. And they pushed further and further south from um, their desert strongholds, and they began to threaten these areas of great historical importance. They destroyed tombs, they burnt manuscripts, and they damaged buildings. Um, it was thankfully followed a matter of weeks later by the liberation of Timbuktu by French and West African forces. Um, but it was a bit of a short-lived relief. I mean, I'm sure of you, some of you will remember that news reports actually showed the forces uncovering the extent of the damage. That these irreplaceable Archives and libraries of Timbuktu were destroyed. Simply no more. I mean, it's just completely unthinkable. I mean, for me, I found it a bit of, it was like slow-motion torture, the gradual unfolding of a disaster. And the flow of evidence seemed to confirm the absolute unthinkable, that these libraries, medieval libraries, completely unique were no more. And it made me really think about what I do and why I do it. And thankfully, the years ended with um, one or two positive bits of news. Um, The rebel forces have been routed. There have been elections in Mali. Um, There's a new president, um, and the president's appointed a new prime minister, Umu Tatum Lai. And he is a really interesting man. He's actually um, a Sorbonne-trained historian. and he, he's, he's the son of, um, of another great um, historian, Ibrahim Alai. Um, and they're part of a, a fantastic tradition of Malians who have really respected their past. So one hopes that it's the beginning of, 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 of a more positive narrative. And when I began the Lost Kingdoms project, I really wasn't sure how it might turn out. I wanted to uncover some of the latest African archaeology, to absorb some of the most insightful thinking um, in the area of African history, and whilst at the same time immersing myself in contemporary Africa. Um, but I didn't know how all of this would fit together into coherent Journeys, And in a way, my hope was a little bit like some of those Enlightenment travellers travelers who visited Italy and Greece, that I might find timeless truths, universal lessons that might be uncovered in the old world. I wanted to pursue history, yes, but I was very keen that these journeys, that they wouldn't just uncover Africa's past. And at the end of two years of travelling, driving from the very high Atlas Mountains, Um, across the Sahara, from the Great Lakes of Central Africa to the golden beaches on the Swahili coast, from the adobe mosques um, of West Africa to the mega cities like Lagos, um, from Great Zimbabwe to the battlefields um, um, where the Zulu fought their their wars. And and I was just deeply affected by by that period of travel, by those experiences. and just the things I, I, I learned, you know, the, the largest mud-built buildings are African. You know, the oldest ceramic traditions. You know, Africa is so much more than just the home of humankind. You know, from the very earliest times, it's pushed the boundaries of creativity to produce some truly astounding things. And it's always been a place of ferocious innovation. And seeing the material proof of that, for the first time, has been a really deep privilege. And if the history, after all that travel, I have to think back on it. If the history has revealed any single pan-continental thing, it's that many of the conditions, the issues, the scenarios, the motivations that triggered the major events in ancient times, they still seem to resonate today. The battle for the resources that drove the politics of ancient Sudan, it still continues. The doctrinal reactions that destabilized the big Moroccan kingdoms, they're still resonant. Over millennia, many of the big issues that drove ancient politics have continued to crackle over time. The inter-ethnic struggles that fueled the development of 18th-century South African politics, that they continue the tension between regional ethnic sociology across West Africa, those things still endure. These patterns remain. And what's so interesting is to watch how Africans have dealt with that history. They continue to reapply lessons from that that, that history. But with that comes the knowledge that for many fighting for African causes, history is often used as a tool of war. And what remains really powerful about what's happened in Mali is that in Ansadeen's case, they saw the potential destruction of Mali's most important monuments and cultural assets as a way of turning the war. That they actually, as they retreated, they thought the most powerful thing that we can do is to destroy historical, historical narrative. And as I watched the news of Timbuktu, I felt actually physically unwell. And it runs so much counter to things that the Malians that I've met and and, and know believe in. It was more than vandalism or even iconoclasm. It was actually an attempt, in my mind, to deconstruct the national identity by destroying some of the totanic anchors of shared heritage. And I think the hope the hope for, from their perspective, was that, in unraveling that nut, that knot that held people together, that history that sociology would simply unravel, and that 's the power the power of history, and why Timbuktu well, Timbuktu, it represents one of the great bodies of written historical material anywhere on earth, but particularly within Africa, where there is so little in the way of written. Of, of written um, bodies of material. There are 700,000 medieval documents held in tembuktu, or there were until earlier this year, ranging from scholarly works to short letters. Um, and many of them are preserved in private libraries. It's a region that has long attracted researchers and religious scholars, and it became the home of a number of Sufis they're kind of they're sort of like s- Saints in the in the cr- Christian tradition. They're venerated religious figures and the painful irony is that the destruction of the tombs and the libraries is you know, It's a w- it's in a way it actually kind of it actually it actually um, puts in jeopardy many of the traditions many of the ancient histories that I imagine the groups like Ansadim, if they actually sat down and thought about it, would be enormously proud of. I mean, its libraries have been important beyond the region for centuries. At its peak in the 16th century, the university was an, as influential as any other on earth. And it, it's, it's a city, as it was then, of 100,000 people, but there were 25,000 students. And it was a period which was critical in the development of Islamic scholarship. And Timbuktu was right at the heart of what was happening. Its growth and cultural dynamism were all driven by Islamic scholarship. And at the beginning of this year, those 24 private libraries, that they held this incredible repository of manuscripts, unmatched anywhere else in Africa. It was a collection that, through an Islamic frame, offered a unique window onto the development of one of Africa's greatest empires. And it also gave an insight into the thinking of just about everything. And if you actually had got to those libraries, if you sit down and you actually read some of those scripts, they tell you all about this medieval city. But they also tell you things about algebra. There are incredible recipes, amazing recipes. There are huge tracks on the movements of the stars, on physics, of all sorts of things. This was an incredible center of learning, and this was an amazing body of written material. And for the, these people who have pride in Islam, the destruction of the buildings and the tombs and the libraries was a profound act, in my mind, of stupid vandalism. And even if Ansar Dean supports Sharia law, And that means, of course, that they oppose anything but the purest Quranic texts. This incomparably important body of material in Timbuktu is at the nexus of a number of important African narratives that I think that we should all respect, irrespective of our religion. If they truly wanted to build a new African narrative, define a new center of intellectual thinking, something that would rival things that were going on in the West. They wanted to build an intellectual tradition that was based on the tenets of Islam. Tim Batu is a fantastic ancient model, and it's a place that should be venerated rather than vandalised. But as the dust has begun to settle, the most defiant librarians have started to reconstitute their archives, and there are stories emerging that, so, as some of the archivists fled, they actually took some of their libraries with them. I mean, some have actually resorted to, there's a very ancient tradition, because this sort of thing has happened in the past. And in the old days, what they would do, they would flee into the desert, and they would bury their collections. And there's a hope that that has happened. But today, almost a year since the siege began, many of the archives remain empty, abandoned, burned out, one of Africa's greatest historical resources, perhaps irreparably damaged. Watching the reports on television, it took me back to my last visit to the city. And I've and I visited many, many libraries in Africa. And despite Hegel's view that Africa has no history, it's the only Well, in my mind, it's not only a a continent that has an embarrassment of history. It's developed unrivaled systems for charting and for holding those stories, for promoting history. There are thousands of small archives of textile stores, of drum stores, that have become more than just repositories for manuscripts, for material culture. they become fonts of communal narrative, symbols of, of continuity. But even in that very special context, Timbuktu is exceptional, so special. I have a really vivid memory of standing in one of the side rooms, one of the, small, of one of the smaller libraries in, in Timbuktu. And you have to imagine it, it's a semi-lit space. And it's heavy with that very particular... I mean, anyone who's visited an old library will... will, will have a sense of of what I'm talking about, of that smell that comes with accumulated book dust over centuries. But this is book dust that's been built up over a millennium of use, and that tang of old tanned leather. And you can actually taste, taste the past on your lips. You can see the sort of bits of desiccated parchment on the light. Feel it under your eyelids. See it suspended in the amber light. And the actual air becomes kind of thick with the soup of the past. You know, bits of corporeal history surrounding one. And my first trip into one of these spaces and, and sitting in there, and I became conscious of the fact that, I mean, probably many of you do, you're, you love history as much as I do, is this feeling that so much of my time that I spend in archives isn't because I'm seeking out a particular historical fact or trying to push a particular narrative. You know, m- most of the time I've been driven there by something much t- less concrete, just by a kind of experiential longing, simply to be close to history, to old things. And this is a place in which you really can feel that ambiently. But I've always thought that there's something more little more magical than breathing in the atmosphere around important documents, of handling inventories, legal papers, of the sorts of things that help you to reanimate dormant dormant bits of the past. And then you feel sometimes you can almost gain a bit of vicarious intimacy. And with so much African history, this is such a rare thing, because there are so few of these kinds of archives. And it's a very special place because from the 1300s, this was one of the most powerful kingdoms in West Africa. And it's a continuity that begins then and remains. And that is a very rare thing. And it comes to prominence in that period because it's then that the emperor Mansa Musa comes to prominence. And he is the richest man not just in Africa, but possibly in the world, but even possibly that ever lived. He had vast, vast gold reserves, and he sent envoys to the courts of Europe, to the Middle East, and Timbuktu's wealth and power developed because the city became the hub of the most lucrative intercontinental trade. Berber merchants from North Africa, they came south across the desert and they brought with them salt, textiles, new precious goods and learning right into the heart of West Africa. But there was also a similar nexus of learning that actually came from the south, from the heart of West Africa. And they, and they all brought their knowledge, their thinking, their trade goods, here to be exchanged in Timbuktu, this new economic, cultural, intellectual hub. But this is a story that I actually think is told best when you give it some context. And it's a story that actually goes back almost as far as any human story can with corroboration to a place called Onjugu, and Onjugu sits on the bend of the River Niger. And the source of the river Niger is way up in the Gili, Guinea highlands. Um, but and it's it's what it's the third longest river in Africa. And by the time it gets to Mali, it's become kind of very kind of slow and indolent and it and it, it spreads into this huge plateau. And, and all of its tributaries have created this very verdant, lush, fertile region. And it's actually been known, um, known for centuries as the, the bread breadbasket of this, this particular area. And its ecological cycles of flood and retreat, that they've encouraged, over centuries, a massive web of human economies. There are fisher folk who live beside the river, Um, rice agriculturalists who work on its banks, millet farmers who work as far away from the floods as they possibly can but close enough to get water. Um, There are pastoralists who work around the delta as well. Um, So all of these different communities over millennia have made this an incredibly rich place. But Onjugu is a fascinating place to start because here where the Niger has defined this region for centuries, you get a sense of the complexity of the history that has wrought by the, this particular area. I mean, recently, after a storm, not very long ago, a, a riverbank collapsed and it, it exposed layers of archaeological sediment. And what, ar- what archaeologists have found is that pottery that tells a story... Of 11 and a half thousand years of history. you know even a superficial look along the riverbank, if you walk along, is well, it's pretty staggering. There are tiny little shards, most of them no bigger than my thumb. Um, and, but they have a kind of power that pottery of that that age does. You know, you hold a little piece in your hand, you can feel it sort of almost vibrate just with the kind of feeling of meaning. And this ceramic activity, 2,000 years older than any other pottery in Africa to date, the same age as the oldest pottery that's found in Japan. But you can see pieces that resemble the kinds of pottery that is still made. You know, bits with the external edges, which have been roughened and and textured, corrugations that have been made in the wet wet clay. And they made those corrugations not just for decoration, that they made them so that they would trap moisture. And the reason they trap moisture is so that the exterior of the pot could be cooled. And this was a kind of technology which was absolutely vital in the storage of food and in the, in the development of, 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 of trade. I mean, the reg- this region may not have a particularly Islamic story to tell, but it has a story which is founded upon these more ancient and indigenous narratives. People were storing their foods using fired pottery, probably trading from this region more than nine millennia before the birth of Muhammad. This pre-Islamic story Is a really fascinating one for me. Its technologies inform so much of what Mali is today. The seeds of the intellectual and trading traditions that have defined the whole region are evident in these banks and can be pulled from little fragments that are found on the banks of this river. And fairly close by, this is another view of the excavations. Fairly close by, this is the Bandagara. Escarpment, and the story continues. And this is a, I mean, if you get a chance, please do visit this region, it's amazing. This is a Bandagara Escarpment, and if you get up onto the top of it, and you're looking northeast, it's the beginning of the Sahel and beyond the desert. But if you stand on the top and you look south, southwest, it's green and it's lush. And this huge escarpment, 500 meters high in certain parts of sandstone, it stretches for a mile and it actually cuts this kind of amazing scar across Mali. And the view from the top, it's absolutely unforgettable. And it's the legendary home of a group called the Telum. And there's a belief that the Telum had the power to fly and you can, you can guess why. And nestled, in the tops of these cliffs are one of the wonders of West Africa. Um, I mean, we can't pick up this story in a way that is chronologically contiguous from Jugu, but there are themes here that can, you can see that resonate across time. The escarpment is actually studded with a honeycomb of complex caves, some natural, But some have been extended by this group, the Telem. And they extended them before the time of Christ. And these were farming communities who grew crops and hunted down on the valley floor. And then they retreated up into caves on the escarpment walls. Um, And what is left of these caves offers a really stunning insight into their world. These were areas which are just set in the overhang beneath the tops of the caves. And these are enormous, cathedral-like. And the Tellum made their homes here. But they also made these amazing adobe granaries. And they made them from the clay which is found in termite mounds. And it's a really highly resistant material because the termites... Eat a lot of cellulose that that um, makes these these structures incredibly um, strong and they are beautiful, they sort of glisten, and that they were used they were used um, for storing their grain, but they also made all kinds of pottery, but the ability to make pottery to store their foods in these huge grain silos, it changed the way in which the, 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 the telem teller could operate. I mean, this meant that they actually had time to do the sorts of things that their hunter-gatherer um, predecessors couldn't. They discovered art, in a sense, for themselves. The kinds of decorations that you saw pressed into the surface of those pots in Onjugu, usually made by a bulrush being rubbed along the external surface of wet clay. Here, it's replicated as just a beautiful design. It's in a way that they are shaking hands with that past visually, but here they're doing it purely out of a love of culture and today it's a wonderful place to go if you get the chance just to rub your your digits in the marks made by someone possibly 2,000 years ago and it suggests that people could think about things more than just their basic needs that they were thinking about beauty, about aesthetics. And it's an interesting climateric, an interesting moment of transition for the people in this region. Um, and you can see here as well how the kinds of forms that are used in the great mosques that are found in places like Timbuktu, made from the same materials, you can begin to see how there's a connectivity to something which was pre Islamic. The mystical Telem, they actually disappeared almost as mysteriously as they'd come. And they were replaced by the Dogon. It's not known how they died out. And it may be that they overlap the Dogon, that they continued to use these caves, but they used them in a completely different way. They respected this past. But the way in which they venerated this past was that they would take the bodies of their dead up into these caves and they would lay their late loved ones out under these overhangs. And today, if you walk, it's difficult because under your feet are the bones of generations of Dogon, bleached bones. And in a way, it's them venerating their predecessors, the Talen. These people, these mysterious people who had the power of flight. But the Dogon also found other ways of reflecting that past. They borrowed similar systems of pattern-making for their own grain stores. This is a Dogon grain store. And you can see that it's got this beautiful carved wooden door. And you see... You can see, you see carved modern replicas of these doors. You can buy them in tourist shops all over West Africa and also in the West as well. But this is how they would have been originally used. And what they're doing here is in part saying, we are, we are Dogon, we are different. But at the same time, there is a nod to the ancient telem. The actual structures themselves that surround the wooden doors are made in the same way, from the same kinds of technologies as the telem. Within the actual panel, the carved wooden panel that makes up the door, there are stories, and they're all stories of where the Dogon came from, of stories of origin, but also carved into it are wonderful, textured decoration that link again back to the kind of pattern-mating that you saw on the Telem granaries and on those wonderful pots that um, were uncovered in Onjuga. And you see these traditions also manifest in, in, in Timbuktu. You know, there, when buildings are, are, are built, you don't just build a building in the traditional Islamic way. There even today in contemporary Timbuktu, you would still call upon a mason, on on, on a a builder who could evoke the power of the past of ancestors, of ghosts. And this is a city which, this is an archeological, dig that went on in Gene Geno, um, which is fairly close um, um, to the Dogon region. And it's an exceptional place, again, which, like the area on Jugo, it was only relatively recently discovered. I mean this was dug up in 1977 by a team of of, of, of archaeologists. And there was a what seemed to be a fairly unassuming mound of earth. But what they discovered there was archaeological material which was five meters deep and went on for a vast area, acres and acres. And if you walk there, it's unlike any other archaeological site I've ever been to. If I've been to archaeological sites in in Britain or Europe, you know, you sit and you marvel upon a single piece. Here, you cannot walk because there is just such an abundance of archaeology. And it ranges from about 850 to the 11th century. And if you just kneel down, the range of pots and pottery is completely bewildering. Some of it's plain, some of it decorated, some of it with that kind of woven, textured outer surface that we saw that was 11,000 years old. And I remember picking up the base of a heavily decorated pot that had been created when Jen was at its height. And it was obvious, even from superficial inspection, that the people had demanded a complex and sophisticated range of property, of uh, pottery, that was serving a really diverse culture. These were people who were incredibly sophisticated, who had taste. And they were probably trading, when you look at the range of pots, with people from right across the region, from right across the Sahara, from right across southern Europe and into Asia. And that was about the economic pull, the dynamism, the liberalism of this place. And this was a region that was trading at the sort of time that Timbuktu rose to provenance. And it was the fulcrum of those ancient, like, those ancient empires like Ghania, Ghana and Mali. And it was an area that actually derived massive wealth from refining this, new, this newly available material, gold, that completely transformed the region. I mean, the desert was traditionally almost um, an impenetrable barrier. I mean the Carthaginians that they try to find ways across the desert, but they only find way they only really through Berber traders do they find a way that is it only kind of is a trickle of trade really. I mean the 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 sorts of the sorts of transport routes that were crossing back and forth from this region up into the north um, were tiny until this period, in which Mansa Musa comes to prominence. And he realizes that in opening up these trade routes that he can transform this region and literally within a few generations it is absolutely and profoundly transformed but one of the ways in which he wants to transform it is intellectually and he gives and he creates a highway which doesn't just bring in trade but also brings in religion and one of the developments that you can see that happens quite close is in a city which is adjacent to Genoa, which is Genné and they developed a mosque here that was founded around 1200 um, it fell into disrepair in the 19th century and it was rebuilt in its present very impressive um, way um, and the mosque is built from some great Sun-baked bricks and mortar and coated in earth and plaster that gives a smooth, beautiful, organic... It's almost an other-earthly-type finish. It's huge. This is a vast, vast thing. And it completely dominates the the, the skyline, even today. But the wonderful thing is, it's just like the Dogon, just like the people of... of um, Uh, the the Telem, is that the whole population of Jene, that they gather together to contribute to the maintenance of this wonderful building. It's reminiscent of, in its form, of the Telem granaries on the Bandagari escarpment. Like the granaries, the architecture isn't just functional, it is glorious. And the chevrons... That evolve, have evolved, that were in the surface of those granaries, have evolved into these complex designs um, that you can see here as architectural motifs. What I'm fascinated by is the obvious cross pollination, both across time and across ge- geography. Timbuktu and Islam of the great Malian empires didn't just grow up in isolation, they blossomed in part, from what was originally here. The constructions of buildings in Timbuktu, it doesn't resemble the Telem granaries for nothing, as the decoration lends from the Onjugorje pot- pottery design. This is something which was absolut- absolutely considered and thought about. As trade crisscrossed this region, so did ideas. The Dogon stories of origin might sit awkwardly with Islamic scriptures, but their ghosts absolutely stalk the Sufi songs that are sung in this region. That deep need to locate and explain their culture is all reminiscent of the intellectual traditions that were developed in Timbuktu. This is one culture with many manifestations. What each of these traditions, the grain carvings at Bandagara, the Dogon iconography, the ceramics and adobe buildings of of Jene have in common, is what remains so important about the documents of Timbuktu. They hold history, stories. And in doing that so effectively, they've become dangerous. They're physical symbols of a culture of cohesion that tells of 11,000 years of history. And unfortunately, it's the natural target for extremists for iconoclasts, who want to destroy that unity and that narrative. In ways that are very concerning, Ansadine and their, and their uncompromising followers have been very successful. The vandalism of buildings and documents has compromised a vital element of this very vulnerable history. It was Timbuktu that those disparate African cultural histories and intellectual traditions, it's where they came together with thinking from right across North Africa, the Middle East, Europe, and they made a powerful, near-unique form of African thinking. When medieval king Mansa Musa made Timbuktu his capital, he looked upon it as the Medici saw Florence, as the centre of a liberal intellectual empire that thrived on great ideas wherever they came from. And Sadin's idea of wanting to prune out those idolatry, uh, sorry, those idolatrous symbols to purify Timbuktu, in my mind, is, is futile. The city, the culture, the very DNA of this region is so beautifully complex, so diverse, that in ways that will remain located in traditions derived from indigenous pre Islamic cultures, that will be that will be unchangeable. And the thing that made those pre-Islamic cultures so successful that turned Mali into one of the wealthiest, most influential kingdoms in in the medieval period was their particular celebration of the finest intellectual traditions wherever they came from. And over the last 500 years, it is that liberal intellectual thinking that has kept Timbuktu as a respected cultural center. I think we should work together to cherish and protect it. Whatever we can do to support the government in putting the phoenix of the desert back on its feet, I think we should do. We should do. But I have a feeling that the phoenix of the desert will fly again. I'll stop there. Thank you very much.
5: That was Gus Casely-Hayford speaking at last year's History Weekend Festival. We'll be returning to Malmesbury this year with four days of fantastic historical lectures. Tickets will be on sale from 29th April and you'll be able to purchase them and find out more information at historyweekend.com from that date. Well, that's almost all for this week. Do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. As well as email, you can also get in touch with us on social media. You can follow us on Twitter at History Extra and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash history extra. Please do make sure to visit our website, historyextra.com, for all the latest history news, blogs, image galleries, quizzes and more. Next week we'll be delving into the Victorian Rail Revolution with Di Drummond while Ian Morris will be sharing his thoughts on the role of war in history. Do join us for that. Just before we go... A quick reminder that you can purchase several back issues of BBC History magazine for just 99 pence or 99 cents until Easter Monday on the iPad, iPhone, Kindle Fire and Google Play. Find us on the newsstand or else visit immediateapps.com to take advantage of this fantastic deal. The History Extra podcast was recorded on location in Devon and in Malmesbury and produced by Jack Fletcher.